So I think many of you guys know that my wife, Rachel, and I, we, we got the Rona right after Christmas. And so we ended up spending a couple of weeks, you know, watching a lot of TV and movies. And what I did was I, I got online and I was like, well, let me just look up. It's, it's like award season. So let me see who's been nominated for Golden Globes and Screen Actors Guilds and things. And that way we could get a sense of what might be worth watching. Maybe there's something we don't know about. And one of the movies that kept just kind of coming up in various categories was one called CODA, um, which stands for Child of Deaf, Deaf Adults. And it's on Apple. We watched it. It was super, super sweet. And there's a, a song, an old song that plays a prominent role in that movie. It's an old Joni Mitchell song. And actually, when I looked up the song, I think it was actually recorded like 10 years before I was even born. Right. So it's a little bit older of a song called Both Sides Now. Um, but it's a song I've always loved. I've, I've owned that song I, my adult life, I think. And so Rachel and I have both been um, just kind of singing it around the house for the last week. So we'll, we'll catch each other singing and then Rachel will be like, wait, what's the next line for that? And I'm like, well, everybody only knows like this one verse, really. I'll put it in the chat. It's the one I've looked at love from both sides now from give and take and still somehow it's love's illusions. I recall, I really don't know love at all. And I think that line, but it's kind of like a mantra that's been coming up is I've looked at love from both sides now. And I think it resonates because most of us have experienced love from different vantage points in our lives. And this idea that you can look at things from different perspectives and still never really fully understand, I think feels so very human. I know the last time I preached, I mentioned that there was a book that Archbishop Desmond Tutu uh, wrote with the Dalai Lama, and that book's called The Book of Joy. And in it, they, they talk about what they call the eight pillars of joy. And the first one of those pillars is perspective, like this idea of seeing things from different sides. The Dalai Lama uh, talks about how there are at least six ways to look at an object, right? Just on like a very practical level, like my cup, since it's sitting right here. You can look at you know the top, the bottom, the front, the back. You've got both sides. You can look from the inside. You can look from like zooming out, zooming in and all around. And it's just a basic idea that to see something from a different angle, maybe to see a situation and be able to reframe it can be really helpful to better understand and to to build resilience through difficulty. And we see this idea infused throughout the Judeo-Christian tradition as well. Archbishop Tutu calls it taking a, a God's eye perspective. And so I thought what I would do this morning is pull out a, a specific example from the Gospels um, to give this, this idea a little more practical meaning, this idea of what it means to have a God's eye perspective or to have God kind of help us see something from a different angle. So there's this story about Jesus that appears in all four of the Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's the story about Jesus's friend, Mary of Bethany. And Mary was one of Jesus's besties, right? Along with her sister, Martha, her brother, Lazarus. And they lived in a little town that was just outside of Jerusalem that Jesus would stay at when he traveled that way. And even today, <clears throat> like when I studied, I, I lived on the Mount of Olives for a few months. And from that place, you can look over and see this little town that would have been the town of Bethany. And today it's called Al-Azaria, which means the town of Lazarus, right? So it's still 
kind of contains the names of these um, of these people, these friends of Jesus. And in this story that's in, in the four gospels, Mary comes to Jesus while he's having dinner with some religious leaders in one of their homes. And she kneels before him and she uncorks a bottle of expensive perfume and then she pours it on Jesus. But while all of the gospels record this story, they do it from different angles and they include different details. So Luke's account, I think, is probably the most different from the four. And I was thinking I might actually preach on that one from his perspective the next time um, I preach. But Matthew, Mark, and John are a little bit more similar, even though they're not the same. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from the, the Gospel of Matthew from his account this morning. And I'll start with, I'll put it in the, uh, in the chat here. This is Matthew 26. While Jesus was in Bethany... In the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. And before we go on, I want to make a few notes here. Um, I want to note a few of the differences. So the Gospel of Mark also calls this man Simon the leper. The Gospel of Luke calls him Simon the Pharisee. And then John doesn't give the name of the person whose home it is. However, John is actually the only writer who names Mary specifically. And in Luke's account, Mary pours the perfume on Jesus's feet and washes them with it, which is probably the more popular account, the one that you might think of, um, while it's on his head in the other three accounts. And I want us to just to notice this because it's natural for stories like this to have different details. Because the gospel stories about Jesus, they, they all started as oral stories, right? And they were passed among various communities, and then they were eventually written down. And so the gospel of Mark was written the earliest, and then the gospel of John was written the latest. And they all were written down within approximately 20 to 100 years after Jesus's death. I personally would probably, I think it's probably more like 30 to 80, but it really depends on the scholar you're reading. But within a relatively short time, Um, I was a history undergrad and had the opportunity to study oral history in Ireland for a semester. And one of the things that I learned is that oral history can actually be quite accurate, especially among cultures that have really rich oral traditions like Jesus's did, right? And so what you'll find when you have a story that's been collected in this oral tradition is you've got the story where like the essence is true, right? Like the, the basic substance of it but sometimes a few of the details might be different. And that just depends on local memory and even on like how and why the story was valued and passed down in different places, right? And so this is part of there being like multiple ways to talk about an event, right? That that's to be expected. Um, And so Matthew's telling is making a slightly different point than Luke's is and that that's okay, right? That helps us see this particular event that happened from multiple angles. All right, so with that, let's go on and and read the rest of it from Matthew here. I'll put it in the the chat. When the disciples saw this, right, this expensive perfume being poured on Jesus's head, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, 
Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you won't always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Right, so Matthew, Mark, and John all show this particular end of the scene, right, where Jesus' disciples are chiding him for letting Mary, you know, quote unquote, waste the expensive perfume. And then Jesus saying to them, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And I think that line, um, the poor you will always have with you, for me, it doesn't seem like something Jesus would say, given all of his solidarity with, right, his advocating for the poor that he did throughout his ministry. And so I think at a glance, it can sound a little bit dismissive. But that line is actually from the Torah. And the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. And Jesus and his followers would have had the Torah memorized, most likely, or at least close to it. And that's usually how the males were educated, at least. And so most commentators agree that this line would have been recognized by the people who were hearing the story. And it would have been one of those cues of like, oh, I know what he's doing. This is from Deuteronomy 15. So we're going to read some of that chapter now. I'll put it in different pieces in the, uh, in the chat, what Jesus is calling up here. Deuteronomy 15, starting in verse 7. When you're living in the land the Lord your God is giving you, there might be some poor people living among you. You must not be selfish. You must not refuse to give help to them. You must be willing to share with them, and you must lend them whatever they need. Don't ever refuse to help someone simply because the seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near. Don't even let an evil thought like that enter your mind. You must never have bad thoughts about someone who needs help. You must not refuse to help them. If you don't help the poor, they might complain to the Lord, and he will judge you guilty of sin. So be sure to give to the poor. Don't hesitate to give to them because the Lord your God will bless you for doing this good thing. God will bless you in all of your work. Oh, I forgot to put that part in, didn't I? There, God will bless you in all of your work and in everything you do. And here's the line Jesus is quoting. There will always be poor in the land, poor people in the land. That is why I command you to be ready to help your brother or sister. Give to the poor in your land who need help. Right, so the section, pretty large section here of Deuteronomy, is acknowledging that there are poor people and that everyone should be generous with what we have, right, to help alleviate suffering. There will always be poor people in the land is the part Jesus quotes. However, if we go further up in the chapter in verse four, the lead into this, here's what we see. There should not be any poor people in your country because the Lord your God is giving you this land and the Lord will greatly bless you. But this will happen only if you obey the Lord your God. You must be careful to obey every command I've told you today. Then the Lord your God will bless you as they promised. And you'll have enough money to make loans to many nations, but you will not need to borrow from anyone. Right, so it starts out with God's dream for humanity being there should not be any poor people in your country. Right, that's the baseline. And God's saying, if you follow my heart and you share your abundance, you'll have leftovers. Right, operate from an abundance mindset and not a scarcity mindset. And then the chapter goes on to, 
there might be some poor people living among you, right? But that's as a result of not obeying God's commands to be generous, right? Having poor among us as a result of a lack of faithfulness to God, not God shrugging and saying, well, there's always going to be poor people. Right? So when Jesus is saying the poor you will always have with you, I think he's doing a couple of things. Um, first, I think he's being ironic. Right? So by referring to this passage from Deuteronomy, Jesus is reminding his followers that the only reason there are poor people in God's abundant creation is because of human sin and self-centeredness and greed. Right? The disciples did not care about the poor as much as they did about trying to make points at the expense of this woman who was Jesus's friend. I think that's why he said, why are you bothering this woman? And then also John's version of the story gives us this little extra bit of information. I'll put this in, in the chat. Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus's followers was there, the one who would later hand Jesus over to his enemies. And Judas said, that perfume was worth a full year's pay. It should have been sold and the money should have been given to the poor people. But Judas did not really care about the poor. He said this because he was a thief. He was the one who kept the money bag for the group of followers and he often stole money from the bag. Right? So Jesus is kind of looking in him, the little side eye, I think. It's a little like, sure, Judas, I'm sure you're really concerned about the poor. And so I think Jesus is both calling out some of his followers and I think he's saying, you guys are missing the point, right? You're, you're kind of bringing up all of these other amorphous people without names with fake concern. And at least one of you has greed as a motivation. And yet here is this woman whose name, you know, who is herself poor and the divine presence is with her right now because God is with the oppressed. And her heart is open in gratitude for this presence. Like, why would you give her a hard time for that? Right? Mary is there with Jesus because she senses the solidarity of the divine through him. And she loves him for that. And she can tell long before Jesus's other followers could that Jesus's actions and his advocacy for outsiders like her were going to result in his death, right? She's like, they're gonna kill this guy which is why Matthew shows Jesus saying, you know, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare for my burial. And so what I see in Matthew's telling here is, is Jesus is pulling his followers out of a way of thinking that wasn't capturing the essence of what was happening, right? And he does it by just putting a spin, kind of a cheeky spin on a scripture that they were all familiar with. Right. You're, you're thinking about all of them, but maybe try thinking about this woman in that same way. Like start there and appreciate that the divine is here in front of you. I think that's I was thinking about that as I was that mantra of that Joni Mitchell song was going through my mind this week. Look at love from both sides now. Right. Yeah. Look at the wider society. Of which God says there should not be any poor people in your country right? And that's a wider collective sin. Sure, see that and check your own hearts and your motives when you're calling for help for people whose names you don't know. And then also view it from this angle. Here's somebody in front of you. Her name is Mary and she's our friend and she did something brave and beautiful, which is why it says whenever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done is also going to be told in memory of her, right? So, 
if I if I step back and I say, okay, in like this really practical way, if we're talking about this, like having multiple perspectives, um, what does that look like in our work, in our families? I think it's an opportunity um, as we see Jesus kind of enters a situation and can sometimes just be like, check out this, check out this angle. I think we can just pray and ask God to help us see situations that seem a little bit, you know, maybe at loggerheads or um, people who are, or struggling with, and maybe just ask for some new eyes or new perspective, and just ask for that God's eye view that Archbishop um, Archbishop Tutu was talking about. Um, I have just two quick practical like stories that I could share with you on this. Um, they both involve kind of like a spiritual perspective that I had, but. I was like, oh, I kind of remember the Holy Spirit just changing my perspective in these two places. One was when I was first out of college and up here in Ann Arbor and I started attending church again. And I was feeling pretty cynical about God and church for, for good reasons. Um, and I remember I was standing at the, there was kind of like a balcony at my previous church and I was standing up there and I was like 24. And I just remembered watching during worship and being like, well, here we go. The music swells, the hands go up, kind of look at all the sheeple, <laughs> um, which is super cynical, I know. And I just felt this little shift in me that felt like it wasn't of me. It was like a different little voice inside that was like, maybe music sometimes facilitates something that humans need. And that, yeah, sometimes that could be like a manipulative thing, but sometimes it's just facilitating like a, a God implanted need to express our worship and gratitude to God. And that kind of helped me do a 180, honestly, on, on church in general. Um, and the second time was there was, I had been witnessing a lot of injustices in a pretty particular space. And I was feeling pretty angry with God and was having a real hard time even engaging God. And I remember I was in my kitchen and I leaned down. I know I've told this story a few times, but I leaned down to just like get a pan from underneath the oven. And I just felt this little like inside voice saying, instead of being mad at me, why don't you try being mad with me? And it was just this little like, oh, I hadn't really thought about it that way. Um, and so these are these are the kind of moments that I'm talking about that can kind of just help us reframe something so that maybe we can engage it in a slightly different way. And so to extend this into a, just a practical every day, I thought for our meditation this morning, we could just take a minute and think about a situation that you have in your life, or maybe maybe it's with a particular relationship where you're just kind of feeling stuck or angry. And we could ask the Holy Spirit to help us be open to seeing it from a different space. And I don't mean the pressure of like, oh, God's going to talk to you right now about that. But maybe just using this time to try and name that and making an openness for the Holy Spirit to uh, sort of enter into that space as we're interacting throughout our work week. And so let's just do that right now. Let's just take a little bit of time if you would like to and just kind of think about a space where you would like the Holy Spirit to help give you another angle. I'll let you know when the time, when the time is up.
So Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a guide, that you are here to lead us into greater truth and light and love. And we ask that you would continue to give us God's eye view of different situations we're in and a God's eye view of people. Um, not that not that people can't be held accountable for bad behavior, but that you can give us eyes to see just the real humanity in everyone, no matter the behavior, you know, the real human fears and um, limitations and needs, and that you would give us soft hearts as we move in this world, that we can bear witness to a God who is love and who is open-hearted and open-handed toward us. Um, we thank you for this. Amen.